It is sarcastic, profane, alcohol-fueled, judgmental. The precise sound of every observation that is made, criticizing, denouncing, and enjoying. Podcast is too small a word for it. It is Peggy Mount Calamity Hour Aural Engineering. Fit it in your ear holes. This week on Peggy's Mountain Podcast. I was already in a huff because Michael Grade had already put Doctor Who on hiatus. And this is what we were given instead. Okay. Because I want to know what the fuck happens in the future that we have to go back to making clocks out of plates and every band is Mumford and Sons. Right, right. I have no problem with that whatsoever. If the tripods <laughs> have done that, if the tripods landing on Earth uh-huh. and doing what they've done results in a cracking Stilton, then bring it on, I say. Yeah, they're like, by the way, you're still allowed to make cheese. <laughs> All right. Hello and welcome to the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour. I'm Dr. Velvet. I'm Blackout. And we're here to talk about some 80s television. Yes, hello you, and thanks for swinging by for our casual cultural critique of vintage television, where Britain's best love battle axe is never far from our minds, because here, all roads lead to the mountain. If you head on over to PeggyMountPod.com, info and links for the episodes we're discussing is in the show notes there. You can find us on the socials, get in touch to hurl abuse, or suggest programmes that you'd like us to cover. Before we go belting into the countryside, Dr Velvet, I've got to ask, what are you drinking? Do you know, I don't even know, because I've never heard of this before, I found it randomly... Um, it's red wine. Right. But it's called Kiki Kaki Red Grape. <laughs> I don't even know. Okay. So so I'm just giving this a go and uh we'll see how it goes. It at the minute it tastes of salad dressing. So mm. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. What about your good self? Uh I am on a can of Studio fifty four IPA. I'm surprised it let you in. Well, <laughs> Had to wear a wig. <laughs> Ginger woolly. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, without further ado. Oh, do you know what? I'm getting a, a little... I've had a little sip of, of Kiki Kaki Red Grape. And do you know what? It's got a little aftertaste of apple. Bit of apple in there. Oh, kind of makes us, it kind of makes us feel a bit hungry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're not hungry. You're not hungry, are you, at all? Um, I'm, I'm all right for now. If that changes, right. I'll let you know, obviously. Let us know, because um, I've got an apple, if you fancy an apple. Okay. And so, on to the first programme of the day, apples aside. It is said, is it not, that a run of bad luck comes in threes? Well, that's certainly the case for those who live in rural England in the year 2089. Ding-a-ding-ding, the tripods! Ding-a-ding-ding, the tripods! H.G. Wells is dead, so he won't sue us. (laughs) 
Yes, The Tripods was a 1984 half-hour pastoral dystopian sci-fi drama series based on John Christopher's novels of the same name. It was a joint production between the BBC and Australia's Seven Network and filmed in rural England, Wales and, at one point, Switzerland. Set in 2089, a race of aliens, known simply as The Masters, have enslaved humanity in their giant three-legged walking machines, having removed all but the rudiments of technology from the planet. We've watched the very first episode, directed by Graham Theakston, and originally aired on Saturday the 7th of September at 20 past 5 on BBC One, in which Will and Henry Parker are two young brothers on the cusp of adulthood and due to undergo the Master's mysterious capping ceremony when they cross paths with a mysterious outcast who suggests that there may be another option. So, back in the day, on a Saturday Eve, did you ever watch Dr Blake's Seven Wars of the Who World? Uh, Who, yes, Blake's no. Right, because that's all this is. This is Doctor Who meets Blake Seven meets War of the Worlds. That's what this is. Right. It's very chocolate box. (laughs) Don't you think? (laughs) Were you, um... Were you into this, though, like back at the time? Because I absolutely fucking loved it. I was annoyed at it. Okay. Is that because you'd already watched enough sort of similar, demographically no. similar content that you can, like, see see the joins? No. I was already in a huff because Michael Grade had already put Doctor Who on hiatus, and this is what we were given instead. Okay. So... They came back with this. Uh-huh. Oh, really? Really? This is the best you can come up with? Some diluted form of War of the Worlds. These are, this is, I'm telling you my thoughts of, 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 a, of a young me back in the day. This is what we get? You exile my favourite Time Lord. I wasn't no. sure which way you were going to be going with this. Okay, it's all, that's fine, carry on. Yeah, no, it's that. That's how I felt back in the day. I've warmed to it over the years. Okay, um, but I remember. I actually remember watching this episode. As I said, it is very chocolate box. What I mean by that is, it's um, it's very pretty to look at. Yeah, the beautiful village setting. Mm-hmm. I don't mind that. I don't mind that. And interesting to know that possibly, uh, in twenty eighty nine. All clothing will be a blend of Georgian and Victorian and occasionally shit. Um, Mind I've got that. Is it ever explained in the series later on, like why everyone dresses in violently clashing patterns like 1930s bumpkins? I can't I can't uh, remember uh, whether okay. that is brought up. Because I want to know um, what the fuck happens in the future that we have to go back to making clocks out of plates and every band is Mumford and Sons. Right, right. This is it. I mean, we get a slight explanation. Well, well, that moves further on in the... I'll get to that in a moment, yeah. because um, a, a certain character does kind of give us a little bit of exposition, but not much. Yeah, because most of the cast here are all left with back injuries from the amount of exposition they're expected to carry throughout the episode. Yes. I can't remember the last time I was out delivering milk to tramps and I happened to conversationally explain my life story to my own brother on the way. In amongst this exposition, we get literally chunks of incidental music which which reeks of late doctor who right. as if to rub salt in the wound okay, okay. um K- ken freeman is doing his best to rehash mark Ayres's scores from uh, from doctor who um but you know uh i have to get over it i have to get over that <laughs> i will say i will say 
the distance shots of the tripods they're a good effort for the time and the budget that's a bit of positivity let's have some well yeah they're all right yeah yeah i'll give you that because i love that for the non-composited shots the aforementioned budget has allowed them to make at one-to-one scale the bottom half of one leg that's basically about a sixth of a tripod that's right this looks cheap yeah. as absolute fuck to make. We'll film yeah, it. Yeah, we'll yeah. film it out in the woods because that's already like scenery, isn't it? We'll just put in a bit about everybody already lives in the woods. That's the future. That'll do. Yeah, all right. Pretty much. Pretty much. Now it's all on video. Yeah. And not film, which I prefer actually. I certainly so prefer it if you're going to choose one over the other rather than zipping between the two. I'm fine with that. Yeah. Well, yeah. Absolutely. Um, some hate it, but to me, it's clearer. It's sharper. Um, mind you, to match the clarity of the vision, uh, they've also turned the gain up on the mics so that you can actually hear molecules shift. Every single fucking shuffle. <laughs> yep. You can hear people walking around in the next village. Absolutely, you can. And there's no need for it at all. No need for it. It's 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 bad enough outside. It's even worse when we, ha- we have interior scenes. Uh-huh. Um... Although it was nice, the, the school scene, the schoolroom scene, was particularly nice because of the teacher. Do you recognise him from anything? You probably won't. <sighs> he looks vaguely familiar, but it wasn't leaping out at us. Who, who, who is he in this crazy fucking outfit of his? He's a lovely man called John Scott Martin. Yeah. And sci-fi, well, cult sci-fi fans will know him. He sat inside a Dalek for years. He was one of the uh, original Dalek operators, but oh, okay. he was an actor. Um, and I suppose as a as a a bonus to the budget for this program, um, he actually looks like that in real life. That's his hair. Yeah, um, fair enough. Fair enough. Because because I've seen him uh, on various Doctor Who DVD extras, mm-hmm. documentaries, that sort of thing, and he's chatting away. I think I think he's no longer with us. Right. Um, but uh, gentle voice, lovely man. What a lovely man. I like John Scott Martin. He's great. So, yeah, that was a bonus seeing him in the school. Yeah. Am I alone in thinking that Jack was the village simpleton before he had the cap put on? Yeah, I've got a, I've got a feeling you're he, probably right. <laughs> he dresses like a clip. I mean... <laughs> yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. Now, there's one really nicely done effect shot when he lifts his, takes his hat off, and he's got like his newly mm-hmm. applied cap thing. We should say for anyone who hasn't watched the episode, the cap is like a thing that the tripods put on your head, which helps them control you or something. It's not really explained this early on. That's fine. They've got a lot of other ground to cover. We'll give you that. Ima- Im- imagine a gold metal comb that they basically hammer into your head. So there's what? Yeah, there's one really nice effect shot of it newly applied, and it looks like really painfully embedded in the scalp there of uh, Simple Jack. Yep. Except that every time it's shown after that, it's just been badly glued on and is lifting at the corners. That's right. That's right. Absolute, to be fair... Absolutely atrocious continuity. <laughs> atrocious continuity and, yeah, I suspect that has been designed to deliberately match the standard of the acting. Right. <laughs> he can. He doesn't like it. It's... Good Lord. I mean, come on. What I want to know is, if Mm. Will is so fucking astounded by a pair of binoculars, like like he he can't even 
he can barely even contemplate what these are for and what these are doing. Does that mean that no one in his version of the future needs glegs? I I wonder. That would make sense. Because there's no one wearing them. So what, do they just let people with bad eyesight just bump into stuff? But then glasses have been around since about the 13th century, so surely they're on the allowed list of technology you're allowed to have when we can still have clocks. Well, then again... Or Maybe the, the tripods are keeping them at a disadvantage by not allowing them the benefit of spectaculars. I didn't know if they'd fixed everyone's eyes with their lasers. They could have. They're like... They could have. We've, right, we are the tripods. We've ended all the wars. We've stopped people writing operas and we've made spec savers obsolete. Pretty certain that's everything? Lovely. Right. And going back to what we said, this is where we learn all of this from Ozymandias. Yes. Uh, who's chatting away in a in a little shed... Which, which the echo is is incredible, uh, in this in this small room, the reverb is is ridiculous. Um, now, Ozzy Mandius is played by Roderick Horn, and before you lay is. into him too much, you got to mm. give him credit for he's doing the acting of three people there. Oh yes, I have nothing against his performance. Right. Although, right. just just on a note about his actual character, do you reckon he stank of shit? Yes, all of them did. Yeah. All of the, all of the vagrants yeah. did. Yeah, I, Again, I it's not really, really do think... It's not really lifted. explained at this point what the vagrants are about. You know they're living outside of society. Um, the village people haven't completely cut them off, because that's why... Well, they shouldn't. Will they his... shouldn't. Just because, you get a, just because you get a top ten hit doesn't mean to say you shouldn't talk to people. Well, and um, that's why like, Will and his brother are taking a wheel of cheese down to them and whatnot. But you're like, why... <laughs> He's pretending to have, like, a cap on... Yeah, but he hasn't got a cap. He's just got like it's just like a hair slide. But you're like, why? I don't understand why he's wearing that if he's already been cast out of society. I don't. Yeah, I don't understand what the what the vagrant things are about. Why? Why have they been? I, I thought like, he's wearing that. I thought they'd escaped capping. Uh huh. Therefore, no one was talking to them. But then he's walking around with the thing going, "No, no, I, I've been capped." He's like, "What? What?" Yeah, very confused. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that's so that if he is caught and they go here. You need capping. Well, I think you'll find that I do not. Look, regard. I mean, to be oh. fair, this story, this first series is like six and a half hours long and I've watched 30 minutes and I'm expecting to know everything. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, I've got I've got the box set and I can I can lend you it. Uh, just wait till I get to France. Whoo! <laughs> Hold on to your hat. <laughs> Hold on to your hat. Speaking of which, by the way... Um, we get to the end of the episode, and they decide to go off on this little quest. What the hell's in the bag? The two of them pack a bag each to uh-huh. take with them on their quest. Mm-hmm. They they are they are duvets filled, <laughs> and he's putting he's putting big glass jars of stuff in the in the bag, and cheese. off they go. It's it's all cheese. Everyone lives on cheese. In the, in the glass jar. Well, uh-huh. to be fair, I have no, I have no problem with that whatsoever. Jars of cheese, nice bags stint. of cheese. Nets uh-huh. of nets of it's cheese pro- and a wheel of cheese just to, to roll or like a sort of like a cheese wheelbarrow. I have no problem with that whatsoever. If the tripods <laughs> have done that, if the tripods landing on Earth uh-huh. and doing what they've done results in a cracking Stilton, then bring it on, I say. Yeah, they're like. By the way, you're still allowed to make cheese. <laughs> hey, fine. Is that is that because I I forget it's been that long. Is that how this, the tripod spoke? I think it is, isn't it? More or less, yes, yes. Would you sit through the entire box set? No, I don't think so. 
<laughs> despite the fact I didn't, despite my cool reception here, I didn't actively dislike it. Um, uh-huh. It's very much of its time. Um, mm, yeah, you know. Why would you yeah. would, would you go back to it and watch? Because famously, they never they never got around to making the third series. They didn't. Do no, you think that's a um, thing which needs to be done now? Well, right. Even though, right, the thing that stops me from watching it is it literally is the acting. It's that bad. I can't sit through it. It's it. The story's fine. Mm-hmm. The premise is fine. I, I like it. I don't mind. Mm-hmm. It's something that I expected to enjoy and get immersed in. Mm-hmm. I can't take the acting. And it's, it's to be honest, it's the worst acting of the series is not from our two protagonists in this episode. It's from somebody they meet a couple of episodes down the way and I've never heard accent acting like it. Okay. Yeah, I hadn't got that far. I think I know who you're talking about, but yeah, I'd have to uh-huh. watch his performance again to properly appreciate I mean, or unappreciate yeah. that. Right. And, and that, it just absolutely puts it... I just can't immerse because that's so bad. No. It looks like I'm watching an audition reel. It's it's horrendous. <laughs> so yeah. So how many pegs? Pe- pegs with three prongs. How many tripod pegs would you pin upon the line for this? One per leg. It gets three. Oh, very harsh. Yeah, I'm sorry. It 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 promises so much and delivers so little. Okay. Um, and Doctor Who was put in a hiatus because of this. Well, for this. I mean, it wasn't, but <laughs> a pretender to the throne. Of Saturday tea time telly. All right, Michael Green. If you don't like sci-fi, why have you got things with big legs running around the, the village? Well, I had the game of this for the Amstrad. It was like oh, yeah. it, it wasn't a, you know, those text adventures where you just like type in what you want to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't one of them. It was one step up right. from that, but it was about five steps down from any kind of action game. There was lots of maps going on. Oh, okay. So I'm fine with the series because it's already more exciting than that game. This is definitely an operation carried out with a hammer rather than a scalpel, but it shows commitment. I think it's a decent stab at the hero's journey. What the show lacks in Mm. subtlety, I think it makes up for in storytelling. It's planting some seeds there. I kind of liked it. Six out of nine, I don't need to watch anymore. However, what everyone wants to know, how many steps... And bearing in mind, you've got three legs for this. How many Mm. steps... Would it take you to yodel to the top of the mountain? Um, three legs are better than two, which incidentally is what I can do it in. Ooh. Two. Right, so the first instalment of the tripod stars Lucinda Curtis, who also appeared in the BBC sitcom Dear John. Next to Ron Pember, who cropped up in 1978's Stargazy on Zummerdown with Peggy Malm. What do you mean he's funny about clothes? Excellent. Excellent work. Right? And your good self, sir. Well, I've got three legs, but I can do it in one. That's a hop. This first instalment of The Tripod stars Peter Stockbridge as the Squire, who also appeared in the 1956 comedy Dry Rot with... Peggy Mount. Never mind that. Pick up that phone and dial the police. Brilliant. Brilliant. I thank you. I thank you. In fact, Peggy thanks you as well. Oh, marvellous. Right, OK, let's take our, let's take all six of our legs and go and buy some stuff at the shops. 
Gentlemen, the world is in terrible peril from this man, Baron Ironblood, an evil genius who is determined to rule the world. These are the creatures he has created to help him. Now you must create your own action force dedicated to the Baron's downfall. Captain Campbell, you will take command of Z-Force, land-based attack troops. Captain Buckingham, the SAS, crack commando squad. Captain McLaren, Q-Force, Subaquatics, and Captain Connors, Space Force. Expect the unexpected. Where will the Baron strike next? Action Force Toys, the battle has just begun. selection by the things by them things and once you've bought the things you can enjoy the things just simple as that there you go ah there we are i wondered that would be for you that would be for you hang on for facsimile let me, okay let me hang on hang on it's it's for both of us right, oh right here we go dear the lads oh, must be important it's all written in capitals why, or oh why, or oh why won't you let producer Ken back on the show? That time you let him out of his booth for your discussion on So Haunt Me was probably your best episode. Let's have less self-indulgent arsing around and more hard-hitting analysis of the classics, please. Yours, producer Ben in Washington. OK, well, thank you for sending that across. We're glad you enjoyed it so much. Um, mm. The next time you listen to that episode... Ben, uh, count the number of let's call them gaseous emissions that you can hear. That wasn't us. So it, it it's not so much that, but that they weren't even edited out. So it feels like the longest recording session the good doctor and I have ever sat through. There is a reason that we keep our producer on the other side of the glass. I'll be honest, I'll be amazed if that makes it in at the final cut. I know for a fact that Ken's dropped at least one of these faxes this series. OK, so far from the madding crowd and the hustle and bustle of life in this studio, let's go to the tranquility of Stackton Trestle. They're not cheap and they're not men. They're dear ladies. my cup of tea Your style full of grace Your ribbons and lace Your elegant flair Dazzle my eyes You're not beyond compare Dear ladies 
Yes, Dear Ladies was the sitcom vehicle for the legendary Hinge and Bracket, which ran on BBC Two from 1983 to 1984, over three series and 21 episodes. George Logan and Patrick Fife take centre stage as Evadne and Hilda, of course, mixing mild slapstick and acerbic innuendo in their country lodge, trying to maintain a veneer of respectability as ladies of leisure while sniping at each other constantly. We've watched one of the later episodes of Where There's a Will, originally broadcast on Wednesday the 3rd of October 1984 at 9pm. Written by Giles Brandreth and guest-starring Sheila Keith, when the wealthy and obstinate Aunt Morag comes for an extended visit, Hilda gets it in her head to ensure that their guest does the right thing in the posthumous redistribution of her estate. Before we even start, uh -huh. this is a thing of beauty. I absolutely love this. I agree. I loved it back go. in the day. There, there we go. That's the reveal road. There we go. <laughs> I never... I knew it existed, but we never watched it back in the day. Right. Oh, it was a mainstay at mine. Well, I say that. Um, my parents didn't watch it. I used to go into another room and I'd watch it on another TV. Uh, I absolutely loved this. From first... And I think we covered this in the last series. I first got an earful of Hinge and Bracket via the good old days mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i was and i i use this word with precision agog at the fact <laughs> that they were men yes uh, couldn't believe it uh -huh. couldn't believe it just from the singing alone and then when you look at the appearance you think pardon uh, yeah absolutely this is how you do drag ladies and gentlemen this is how you do drag now i was always mm -hmm. slightly unnerved by hinge and bracket when i was little okay it's that grimace that Patrick Fife does in lieu of a smile but then again the, didn't, the act isn't really aimed at a young audience is it which is why I'm sort of baffled as to why this was on at 9pm on BBC2 I think it probably fell a little bit outside of my time bracket for the age I was then um, Right. and to be fair while this isn't last of the summer wine levels of gentle this does not feel like it should be on at 9 o'clock I've no idea how it ended up there yeah, maybe they they didn't quite know where to put it, but I don't know. They've done a good job here because this is a visual version of Radio 4's The Random Jottings of Hinge and Bracket. Right. They've literally just picked it up and put it there. Mm -hmm. Same setting. Uh, and one thing, Patrick Fife, who is erstwhile Dame Hilda Bracket, um, one thing he is amazing at is world building. Right. And that really comes through with this. Mm -hmm. The whole stacked and trestle, the people in it, most of whom we never see, but are mentioned and we know them. Yeah. It's it's tremendous, this. It's a right labour of love. And um, written, I mean, this episode was written by Giles Brandreth. So were a lot of others, most of them, in fact. Um, you're right, the, it is gentle. The humour is gentle, almost to the point of sedation at times, but I don't mind it. Oh, no, it's, no, exactly that. It's like, it's classic farce. It's very stagey. Yeah. It's very well-paced. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. It absolutely plays to Brandreth's strengths as a writer, and it does. it's just perfect for Hinge and Bracket. It just feels mm -hmm. like this programme should be from 1972. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Very, very, <laughs> very much so. I, again, I, mean, I don't know, quite know, how this got commissioned for TV in the 80s and ran for so long, although I'm very glad that it did, but... Yes. Um, no, I'm, I, I really am. It's uh, it's quite refreshing. We rumble along and rumble along on this little quaint imagery, etc. But every now and again, we're presented with filth. Filth like this. And it does, of course, come with a full range of accessories. 
Oh, would that happen to include a crevice tool? <laughs> Madam, I don't know about your crevice, but it'll handle your stripes extremely well. Oh, really? Oh, I see. I'm very tempted. I knew you would be. You're a natural for it. Oh. Tell me, do you always do it yourself? Well, the case of having to, dear. <laughs> well, this is going to make life so much easier for you. And so much more fun. Of course. No wires, no batteries. No batteries. What a pleasant change. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, marvellous. I will say, Dr Evagni Hinge used to terrify me as a kid. There we go. <laughs> what is it? So, yeah, so, a, so we're basically unnerved, look. unnerved by the pair of them, each of us. Mm. That's fine. Yeah, there was. it was just the look of a very, very frightening uh, headmistress. Mm-hmm who was unforgiving and who specialised in maths, which was the subject that I was terrified of doing. Right. Um, so, so, yeah, that's exactly it. A plus side with that is that George Logan, who plays Evadne Hinge, that's not a wig. That's George Logan's hair. Amazing. Absolutely yeah. amazing. Yeah. It, not in that... He didn't wear it in that style out offset. Yeah, But yeah, yeah. It, it was long enough and crazy enough to, to have that done to it. Yeah, Fantastic. that I do know. Fantastic. Well, um Indeed. Um, Auntie Morag's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, she's good. Again, it's like, it's hard to, I think it's hard to shine so brightly when you're constantly being upstaged by Engine Bracket. She does. Agreed. Sheila Keith does really, really, really fucking well. Um, I'd sort of like to have seen her being a little bit more pantomime. At the end of it, I don't think she's quite the dragon that they make her out to be. That could sort of be the point of it, but, you know. Mm-hmm. It feels like yeah. a setup which then falls flat when she just turns out to be basically fine. Uh, yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. Noticeably absent from uh, all of the series of Dear Ladies is Maud. Mm-hmm. Now, Maud was their home help, played by Daphne Hurd, yep. uh, uh, Mrs. Pulovitska yep. into The Manor Born. Uh, and Maud was, she was the slapstick element of the radio show. Um, she would help them out in the house. I think she would have been a, a benefit in this, I think. I mm. think. Or maybe it might have been too crowded. I'm undecided. I'm undecided. Have you ever seen Patrick Fife out of Hilda Garb? Uh, no. I did see Hinge and Brackett live I think it was about 97, 98. I think it was 98. Went to see them with um, Mrs. Blackout. Completely unironically. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. completely loved it. Fantastic work. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Oh, I can't say enough about Hinge and Bracket. Mm-hmm. They, are mm-hmm. just, they are just superb. Um, it sort of feels like their act should be much older... Mm-hmm. Even though they only started doing it in the early seventies, I mean, it's still you know it's still older than me. That's fine, and obviously I am old now. Um, I think it's because I'm, again, probably my first exposure to them was on the good old days. So I just kind of assumed they were as old as their characters, which they're not. Yeah, you know? um, no, they're not. There's a there's a reassuring antiquity to them that I love now that I am middle aged. Yeah. Oh, that's exactly it. I would describe it as this whole series is an unassuming scone at an afternoon tea. And every now and again, you get a sprinkle of spice in there to give you a kick. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that, that's that's basically how I see it. It's, uh, it is. It's wonderful. 
Um, one thing, mind, when they're playing the game of bridge yeah. and they've invited jo- Joan round to be the fourth for bridge, mm-hmm. they get through a litre of whiskey pretty quickly, or rather Auntie Morag does. Yeah, and again, I was sort of expecting that to pay off more. It happens, yeah. and then there's not really any sort of big gag coming out of it, just that she's necked a litre of whiskey. Okay. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> Just ready to move on to the next one. Yeah, because otherwise you just gone. She's Scottish and she's drank a litre of whiskey. I think that's casual racism, lads. It's, you know. <laughs> well, 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 well. You know, attention to detail, and she drowns her whiskey in soda. Okay, okay. Which, I mean, you know, you can't generalise these things, but I do know a lot of whiskey lovers. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. But see that as a sin, and she has a distillery. Surely she should know better. But you can't have. Like a stage farce without a soda siphon, surely. Well, that's a, yeah, you're probably right. It's one of the golden rules, isn't it? Yeah, it's great. It's great. Just, just wonderful. In fact, um, I would describe this as a shrill operatic bellow in the face of alternative comedy that was around at that time. A, an act of defiance. That's a fair assessment. Yeah. Again, I think it's yeah. certainly a more coherent act of defiance than something like Terry and June by that point. Yeah. But there you go. Hinge and bracket. Hinge and bracket. If you step outside into their sprawling garden on washing day, yes. how many pegs would you place upon their washing line? Well, I do think that this only works because of hinge and bracket's established chemistry. The same script will probably fall flat with any other performers, and likewise... They could be brilliant in anything else. But I'm still happy to give it eight out of nine. What about yeah. yourself? Um I think you're right. Um but nine. Nine, 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 Fair nine. Play. Fair play. That's all right. This is this is I've grown up with this, mm-hmm. loved it ever since. Just you can't touch this. As the hammer would say. There you are. Right, okay. Dear ladies. Scoring very highly. Question remains, though. How many steps would it take you to yodel up an operatic mountain? I can do it in two. Do it. This episode of Dear Ladies was written by the erudite Giles Brandreth, who starred in a 1975 episode of Rogue's Rock, next to Harold Goodwin, who was in 1984's It's Never Too Late with Peggy Mount. The nasty phone nice. call! Nice. Very good, very good. It's kind of chilly up here. Why don't you come and join me? I will, but I'll do it in one. Ooh! <laughs> This episode of Dear Ladies stars the redoubtable Sheila Keith, who also rolled up in the life insurance episode of George and the Dragon with... Maggie Mall. Well, never mind what I said, he hung up. Fantastic. That's what we want. 
That is the content really that is. the boys and girls are here for. Isn't it just? And that content brings us to the end of another episode of the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour. Blackout, as per, has got your dear, gentle socials. Yes, thank you once again for listening to all this. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email peggymountpod at gmail.com or we are at peggymountpod on Twitter. You can also find us for searching for the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour on Facebook and don't forget to go to peggymountpod.com to check out the show notes for this very episode. It's as simple as that. And you know what? I wouldn't normally push, 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 but do yourself a favour and watch Dear Ladies. It's simply marvellous. Until the next time, from us on the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour, keep mountain. The Peggy Mount Calamity Hour is a free podcast from Michael Media which holds production copyright. Opinions and recollections expressed are not to be taken as fact. The title and credit music is by Dr. Velvet. Audio segments and television programmes are presented for review and informational purposes only under fair use, and no ownership of these is claimed or implied by this show. For more information, visit PeggyMountPod.com. Peggy Mount Calamity Hour.